Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's most interesting and innovative radio station after two decades on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm spending an hour with two of London's most exciting artists, Phil and Galia Collective. Phil and Galia Collective are London-based artists, writers and curators who work in collaboration. Their work addresses the legacy of modernism, exploring avant-garde discourse of the 20th century in the context of a changing landscape of creative work and instrumentalised leisure. They are interested in the relationship to art and politics, and the roles that irony and belief play in its current articulation. They often use choreographed movement and ritual as both an aesthetic and a thematic dimension, juxtaposing consumer rights and religious ceremonies to find the underlying convictions of a secular, post-ideological society. They also run Zero, Klein and Coma, an artist-run project space, and teach fine art at the University of Reading, the Royal College of Art, and the London Metropolitan School of Art, Architecture and Design. They occasionally make what might be called music of Uber, that's their phrasing, not mine, and have been known to play in a band called We. So, Pelagalia, welcome to Sweet 212. Hello, thanks for having us. Uh, It's a pleasure. Um, I'm going to do something slightly different with the show's structure today, uh, which is to start off with a reading um, of an article that you published for a series that the Haran Faraki Institute ran online um, during the COVID pandemic last year. Uh, Well, I mean, so last year, um, last year in the first uh, lockdown. Um, And it's called A Thousand Kitchen Tables. And I think it touches on a lot of the themes I want to talk to you about that come through in your work that obviously we will uh, discuss over the course of of this programme. But why don't we start with uh, with a reading of that article and then we can uh, build out the discussion from there. Happy to. <clears throat> so it reads like this. Over the last few decades, a series of dichotomies have been eroding quietly under the pressure of life in late capitalism. Private slash public, work, leisure, consumption, production have become irrelevant in a system where value emerges directly from the marketization of human capital. In 1971, Daniel Buran described the artist's studio as a private place, an ivory tower, where portable objects are made to be consumed elsewhere. For most artists, until very recently, the studio has become anywhere with a Wi-Fi, a kitchen table, a cafe, a train journey. The artist has become an entity that collects, connects, and displays internet searches, mobile moving images, social media conversations, and eBay listings. Art production has moved away from Buren's model a long time ago and is now rooted in dialogue and process, ephemeral and responsive, produced directly at the point of engagement with other humans and objects. In a pandemic, with the removal of semi-public spaces for the consumption and production of art objects or spectacles, these conditions have become even more pronounced. In this respect, through COVID-19, conditions that were already prevalent, but somehow still shapeless under the patchy surface of austerity, have crystallized into clear form. In redefining practices that were previously supported by more public spaces of production and display, or at least fed into them, artists now have to accept these post-order structures. Where in the past, the art world may have been divided on how to respond to the rise of post-studio practice, 
with some doggedly insisting on materiality and regularity as marks of resistance, and others adapting more keenly to project-based post-internet art. The choice has now been removed from us, at least temporarily, leaving us to reevaluate the hierarchies embedded in these positions. Art will now emerge from bedrooms, quarantined hotel rooms and parks as a default, rather than as the consequence of failure to attain the historical conditions of studio practice or by vanguard choice. One of the interesting questions for artists is how to find critical distance within this. How can we create work from within these imposed conditions and reflect on them at the same time? On the one hand, this question of how to be critical without occupying an outside position has plagued artists for a long time. However, in the time that has passed since Joanna Drucker celebrated complicity as the end of critical negativity in art, the world has changed. We are well past the end of history moment that saw neoliberalism unfettered in the wake of the end of the Soviet Union. In the face of the current resurgence of fascism, complicity hardly seems like a problem and being in opposition feels easier than ever. Where 15 years ago, dissident artists would be offered the crumbs from the table of the major art fairs via performance and talk programs, in the age of austerity, there is far less risk taking on the part of those institutions. And the precarity of millennial life means fewer opportunities than ever present themselves to make tough choices of resisting the seductions of the art market. At the same time, while the aims of dissent feel clearer than ever, our means of expressing it in the form of some kind of collective action have been curtailed by circumstances. In the human condition, Hannah Arendt notes the division in classical Greek culture between the private realm, where economic activity resides, and the public realm, where political life happens through debate and collective action. For Arendt, part of the problem of modernity lies in the collapse of this binary and the creation of an economics-driven politics. COVID-19 has brought back an interesting version of this dichotomy. A lot of economic production now happens in the privacy of one's home, while politics is exclusively about the policing of the coming together of bodies in public, at least while economic activity is suspended. This new realignment of the public and the private does not skip art institutions. Public museums, as Benedict Anderson and Carol Duncan remind us, are an arm of the state whose function it is to reproduce citizenship, a sense of belonging to an imaginary shared history and geography. As such, it will hardly be surprising to find that these institutions will likely participate in the biopolitical policing of access privileges where entry into their civilizing spaces is guaranteed to citizens, but forbidden to those designated as non-productive, the shielded, disabled, ill, old, and those who care for them. However, since exclusion from these sites is nothing new for many, there are plenty of examples to draw on in thinking about how art might proceed outside them. We can think of feminist art that dealt with the institutional marginalization of women by resorting to male art networks and exchanging art objects by post. The work that came out of these exchanges was clearly a critique of domesticity and the gendered labor associated with private spaces. But through circumventing traditional galleries and modes of display, they never allowed for an external public critique of the private. The site of production, materials, often domestic stuff, from newspapers to yarn, and modes of display created a critique of the domestic without stepping outside of it. Consider, for example, Sue Richardson's Bird Breakfast from 1976, 
crocheted full English, a critique of domestic labour paradoxically delivered through a labour-intensive and underappreciated medium. Or Carlisle Reedy's Yoga with Interference from 1981, using the bed as a set and referencing lists of groceries, school schedules, Christmas lists, book lists, lists of all the things that women have to do in slavery of domestic life. Similarly, we've long been fascinated with the Moscow apt art movement where domestic spaces became sites for production and display of art. As a model for making art in the absence of a legitimate public sphere for critical artists to operate in. With the evisceration of our own public space nearly complete, we might do well to draw on such historical precedents for strategies where a fridge becomes the first page of the novel and the kitchen sink a monument for Malevich or Yuri Albert's performance piece of literally helping people with household chores. The concept of Sikritiki, recently foregrounded by the Moscow Garage Museum survey, reminds us of the possibility of art as a secret practice shared between initiates, but coded for future use in anticipation of the public to come. As the current uprising against white supremacy and police oppression demonstrates, it is too soon to condemn the political constitution of publics to the history books. And yet there are many for whom this type of public collective action will be impossible. With further repression inevitable and a shrinking cultural space for critical production, away from the Zoom curatorial initiatives and online galleries, it may be that the artistic public sphere of our plague times yet to emerge is being constituted across a thousand kitchen tables awaiting its time. That's great, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, reading that piece and being being very struck by it. It was a really interesting series that the Harren Rocky Institute did. Uh, and your piece, I think, was one of the one of the standout contributions. Um, so I'd like to sort of pick up on a on a number of the themes uh, there. Um, but I think you know because your your work often deals so interestingly uh, with the intersections between theory and practice. Um, the first question is quite a basic one, which is how has the pandemic changed your practice? Well. To be honest, a lot of the things that we noticed in this um, essay have started to happen long, long before the pandemic. Um, and we noticed um, a lot of semi-public uh, spaces, venues, um, kind of small-scale galleries, studio complexes, etc., closing down because of financial pressures and the rise of um, rent. Um, so the pandemic more than anything accelerated and concentrated things for us and we think for a lot of other artists um, and really prevented um, like the, the or kind of like kind of made the very last remnants of what we were holding on to disappear, which is, you know, that kind of at least uh, a very temporary and fragile community, a kind of coming together of people just for an event or just to kind of experience something together. That became a lot harder. And I don't know if it's coming back in the sense that obviously spaces are operating now, but I, I don't know if we can ever cleanse our minds of this kind of suspicion of bodies and sort of like of being together. I mean, I feel very uncomfortable with this resumption that I think the text we wrote um, although it came out of uh, kind of frustration, not being able to do the kinds of things that we do as artists and as curators, we couldn't run our gallery, we couldn't do live performances, which our work really centers on. Um, but I was also optimistic that actually this might bring about some change because 
the way things had been going wasn't particularly good for those things anyhow. We were struggling to uh, get people to come to an event at a time and place because everyone's lives are so precarious and complicated. Venues were vanishing. So in a way, I was hopeful that we would emerge from the pandemic with some kind of renewed idea of art uh, that would take these things into consideration. And instead, what I'm seeing is people desperately trying to kind of roll it back to the way things were, ignoring the risks, uh, the fact that a lot of people are still dying or still at risk, um, you know. So I don't feel particularly comfortable with what's happening, um, but also it's dispiriting because it shows a lack of political initiative. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, I broadly agree with all of that. Um, and it's very striking how much utopian talk there was during the first lockdown within the art world about how things might look different, about how um, the art world might deal with its uh, heavy carbon footprint, for one thing, um, with issues around accessibility and uh, exclusion. Um, and, you know, general sort of decadence uh, within the art world, a kind of wastefulness that uh, I've often found quite distasteful and I kind of found really it was uh, September in London where everything just seemed to open up again uh, and it really did feel like nothing had happened and then the first opening I went to um, I got pinged the next day because it was quite a kind of youthful show um, and uh, numerous people had uh, gone out afterwards and then tested positive for, for COVID so it you know I, I kind of a, a concur with what you say about the art world seeming to to not learn much and not really change change at all on the other side of this um and, and actually, we actually went to to a kind of online talk I, actually this is a good thing that's come out of it is there are online talks and I think that is something that is kind of suited to the medium so we went to this thing about the artist as worker um, and there were some very good speakers in that. So um, my critique that follows isn't of the people presenting who were largely very good. But um, I noticed that there was a lot of talk of um, artists being kind of entrepreneurial and creative at kind of dealing with these challenges. Um, people in the chat were saying things like, I've been an artist for 40 years, we're very resilient. And I thought, well, if you've been an artist for 40 years, you've got that training under very different conditions to the conditions that people have to deal with now. Um, but they were also kind of um, linking to a lot of reports that have been uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, people, you know, gov the government has been commissioning a lot of reports on art and culture or the Arts Council has. Um, so I, I followed up a few of these links. And it seems to me like there's a general acceptance of the ideas of like creative industries, entrepreneurialism, and even this like horrendous term leveling up, which I find completely baffling in its meaningless video game speak register. You know, what does it mean to level up? It means, it makes sense in a video game to go up to another level, but in economic terms, economy being a differential field somebody else has to level down for you to level up like that it's just illogical um but everyone's just accepting these terms rather than um i think there's a kind of cultural amnesia around uh the things that made british culture so exciting to begin with like culture in britain other than british culture uh the dull um all these 
you know, squats people could live in, art schools that operated under completely different conditions. And all that's been completely forgotten. Yeah, I mean, I would, um, you know, as much as you feel able to, I'd quite like to um, to talk to you a bit about the art schools, actually. I mean, um, full disclosure for listeners, uh, Pill and I uh, teach together at the Royal College of Art. We've been on the picket line together uh, this year and last year. Um, and Pill and Galia were also uh, my bubble um, during the uh, this year's COVID lockdown. Um, so, so we have spent a lot of time together kind of professionally and personally, but um, yeah, I mean, this feels like a good place to talk a bit about the, um, the UCU strikes, University College Union. Um, and we have done a full show on that that was online only, but listeners might want to check that out from, um, from March last year. Uh, but once again, the, um, the University College Union are, are striking over the four fights on pay, workload, casualization, and uh, equality um, for pay gaps between um, white staff and um, black staff, people of color, 17%, disability pay gaps, 9%. Uh, the mean gender pay gap is 15.1%, and at the current rate, it won't be closed for another 22 years. Um, so could we talk a bit about um, maybe your experience of, um, of teaching, bureaucratization, um, and again, the effects of, um, of austerity and cultural policy on, on, on that practice? Super, super important. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's got like a million stories about particular engagements with management or students, but I guess me and Galia, we're really interested in the macro, like in think thinking what's what's happening on a, on a broader scale. We think that what's happening, actually it's a kind of much, much longer process of that has been exacerbated by the marketization of education um, since the introduction of or tripling of the tuition fees uh, over the last decade. But what's happening is um, several things. First of all, um, it is a kind of interesting de-skilling of academic work. So uh, it's an area, um, and, and, and partly this is because it's a lot easier to manage kind of um, people if they're not autonomous units of kind of research and thought and, and kind of teaching practices. But so everything is kind of streamlined and kind of in, in a more Fordist way. Um, so the fancy of a lot of universities is to um, to run teaching like uh, a YouTube playlist where consumers, as in students, simply select content um, that is kind of pre-recorded and given to them. It's almost almost doesn't matter, like you know, with complete. Um, disregard to classroom environments, that community that happens um, when you go to art school in particular, and the things that you find um, in, 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 in common with other people. The second thing that I think is happening is a desperate attempt of um, a conservative government to, to find a kind of metric to measure, or kind of economic me metric to measure research and intellectual activity. It's kind of like a post Fordist holy grail. How do you know what value a certain idea has? It's a real problem. And especially when our so-called um, kind of, you know, um, post Fordist economy is based on, on thinking and creativity and all of those things that New Labour particularly marketed. So 
I think there's a real desperation of trying to find all sorts of weird exercises, structures, um, and all sorts of other kind of like uh, instruments to try and get like a really kind of skewed and weird uh, measure to say, oh, you're doing really well because you've published X, Y, and Z and you're not. So this increased our workload endlessly. It placed loads of people uh, under increased pressure and it created classes within universities and kind of colleges of, uh, you know, kind of, star professors who are valued for their um, proven research and people are kind of just like, um, you know, bearing, um, like teaching most of the unglamorous um, teaching jobs. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to add to that, going back to this point about cultural amnesia. um, While I find it really gratifying to work with young people and I think it really kind of keeps you on your toes to have these conversations with them. I am always astounded by how quickly things like tuition fees become normalized. You know, the kind of marketization takes hold and uh, students are structurally brought to see themselves as consumers. So I don't think it necessarily comes from young people. As we know, they voted very much against all of this. Um, They understand the the kind of interests here. But um, I'm struck by how when I talk to young people, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a student about NFTs and he said that um, these uh, new kind of digital ways of consuming art were more democratic because they cut out the gallery. And I said that, you know, that you could have things like um, artist unions, you, you do have structures in places like Canada where you get royalties for, for showing art. Uh, the Dutch and Danish government have subsidized art production. And he had no idea about these things. And I think, I, I'm not blaming the student for this, um, but I think there's a kind of um, structural kind of historical amnesia around the fact that things could be otherwise. So increasingly we're kind of uh, working in these situations where everyone is a cynical subject. Nobody believes in, in the structures. Um, we all have to use this kind of double speak around uh, employability and transferable skills, all this kind of stuff that comes from the top down. Um, But people forget that art schools used to be completely different, that university education could be a public good. So even when they kind of argue about it, even to defend it, they talk about, no, it is worth this much money or it isn't, rather than thinking like, why are we even quantifying it in those terms? Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article um, during lockdown last year for Freeze about uh, the locked room, which was an experiment in the sculpture department at Central St. Yeah. Martins, where there were two two different courses. I think the B course, you could just do a fairly conventional sculpture degree, but the A course, they just basically locked, I think, 13 students in a room, um, you know, for sort of office working hours and just gave them kind of next to no or maybe no supervision at all and just told them to get on with it. And obviously some of the students loved it. Some of the students hated it. Um, But as I I said in the piece, you know, that was really kind of reliant on the students not having to have a day job and or, you know, an evening job, I should say, or a weekend job. And, you know, not having a certain set of expectations that come with this consumerist mindset that you've just been kind of outlining. Um, And I do feel that a lot of sort of experimental approaches to pedagogy have either been lost or are just not being allowed to exist at all? Well, we've talked a lot about these experiments. Um, that's partly why we ended up in art schools. 
we we found out about art schools from reading about music. So we were into bands and you read a few biographies and you notice that they all went to art school. And, uh, you know, all the kind of key figures in the history of popular music in Britain went to art school. And you start to dig deeper. And I remember reading things like Michael Bracewell's biography of Roxy Music and reading about Richard Hamilton's experimental teaching in Newcastle and how that filtered to the course on um, course in Ipswich that Brian Eno studied on and then uh, the course at Reading where we now teach uh, where Rita Donner, who was one of uh, Hamilton's students ended up teaching and did a very similar experiment to the locked room scenario. So um, we know about all these things, but when we've thought about, you know, shall we do a project reenacting this? We've come up against the impossibility of this because teaching is now modular. It has to work around uh, students' other commitments, the day jobs, as you say. Um, and those students who were doing it then, not only were they not working, they were on bursary, which again, people forget. So uh, Brian Ferry, having graduated with a 2-2, not even a very good grade, got a 200 pound bursary, which was an enormous sum at the time, on graduation, just to go spend some time in London, you know, just check things out. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's unthinkable now, isn't it? Um, you know, it's, it's hard for people under 25 now to even get on um, housing benefit, for example. Um, so yeah, huge, huge changes there. Um, that feels like a good uh, bridge into talking about the role of music in your practice though. Um, uh, so maybe we could talk a bit about, um, uh, you know, obviously, well, firstly, firstly your move from, um, from Israel to, to London and, and maybe the role of music in that, but also both your music journalism and uh, the two groups that you uh, play in, Bororo and We. Well, I, I guess I moved from, um, we'd like to say Jerusalem rather than Israel because we're very kind of like, we have this weird local patriotism, even though Jerusalem is the, the most hardcore city. It's, it's segregated, it's poor, it's violent, it's policed. Um, it's horrible in many ways, but we're from Jerusalem uh, rather than Israel. But our move is, is intimately linked to uh, music. So art, like, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, it's, it's easy to kind of forget that like for many, many people on the periphery of kind of those cultural centers of the world, um, culture is not something that you can consume very directly. So it's kind of like, for us, culture was simply uh, a transmission of, of kind of images that are blurry black and white images that were printed in a local um, paper in the music section of the local paper or some kind of um, um, late night television show on the one channel that we grew up with Israel only had one channel and sometimes they would buy documentaries from the US or the UK and sometimes you got to see some band so often um, ideas like the ones that those musicians picked up from art school were diluted and kind of transmitted to us in the form of sort of like uh, album covers or, or sort of um, song lyrics. And this was really our, our only um, access point to a lot of this culture. So, you know, for us, music is, a, it's kind of like a large sphere in which ideas kind of circulate. It's not just about music music popular music is interesting and kind of unrecognized because it's a combination of performance arts of writing you know song lyrics poetry 
um, of um, of obviously kind of like you know music and uh, music shit, and um, but also kind of there's a strong visual side, so kind of album covers and video music videos, etc. Um, so all of those things for us felt really vital and exciting and, and kind of real. Um, we hardly knew anything about the kind of history of art that those things were sort of like referencing. But um, so this is why music had become the sphere that we became the most interested in. And I think that kind of operation of um, borrowing, kind of taking ideas from the history of art and um, somehow putting a very contemporary twist on them and making them accessible to people without almost kind of without um, an understanding of, of that mechanism of replication is really amazing. Well, I think we were very ignorant about art, but what, what little we did know about art at the time, I remember saying we didn't, we felt quite alienated from. Um, and we were always being asked why we weren't making music. And at the time we felt like we loved music too much. Music was good, whereas art wasn't that great. So we felt like, you know, you could do something there. <laughs> so music felt like a very intimidating thing that was very dear to us. Um, and through reading some very good music journalism, I think it was also at least locally, the kind of golden age of music journalism. Uh, maybe it was the fag end of that in Britain, but uh, we read these amazing music writers, some of whom were in bands, some of whom had moved abroad uh, to London and to other major cities. And we thought that was where it was at. So our dream in high school when we met was to become music journalists. And we achieved that dream very quickly, <laughs> straight out of high school. Um, and yeah, Jerusalem, you know, it's very small. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing, it's not that far a leap to get to write for that music section. So we did that, that was the ultimate goal. And we've kind of come full circle by kind of going back to that, revisiting that writing now. Um, but for many years we wrote about music and didn't make any. It was only when we started making performance work um, that we initially collaborated with other bands to produce music for the performances. Um, and then on the one occasion where we couldn't fly enough people out to do something, we thought, oh, okay, we'll, we'll just have to be in it ourselves, fine. By that point, we'd been teaching, we were less kind of scared to stand on a stage. We'd done a few performances that we weren't in, but we thought, you know, if, if it needs doing, we'll just wear the costumes, grit our teeth and, and do whatever needs doing. Um, and we really came out of that. And it was to our surprise that that evolved into a genuine collaboration um, initially with uh, Victor Jakeman and Ruth Angel Edwards, and then subsequently uh, Annie Bieber replaced Ruth. Um, but that became a kind of long ongoing collaboration that was very generative for us um, and kind of grew beyond the initial concept. So the initial concept was really, really simple. It was taking existing songs and singing them in the plural, uh, like we wanna hold your hand, we will always love you uh, and kind of really playing with the construction of individuality and collectivity in popular music through lyrics. Um, we swiftly realized the music didn't need to sound like the original songs whatsoever and we could just mess around with it, inspired by kind of the minimal synth covers that we loved. 
Um, and that project kind of evolved as we went on and, and kind of shifted stylistically um, through our own musical interests, but also those of our collaborators. Um, with Urbororo, we wanted uh, a simple thing that we could do without getting the whole gang together and, you know, uh, mounting this complicated performance piece. And uh, it was just us playing together. We got the opportunity to, to do some stuff together. Um, and we recorded some songs with the concept of uh, doing a kind of office worker swamp blues. Um, so we took lyrics from a managerial help book and set them to kind of very primitive rockabilly style music. Um, and the name Urbororo um, comes from a Will Self story, uh, the quantity theory of insanity. Um, it's in the quantity theory of insanity. It's called um, Understanding the Urbororo. And it's about a tribe that is just really, really boring. And it's basically a kind of uh, suburban English sort of uh, existence. Like they live in little cottages and they have um, sort of like boring jobs and they only talk about the weather. So it's a kind of satire of Britishness. Um, and I think that was kind of what we were trying to do. I think a lot of our work explores this kind of pseudo primitivism as a kind of form of satirical critique. Um, we recently watched The Black Safari and uh, it really resonated with us, this idea of looking at kind of Western European culture as the primitive, as the, the indigenous thing that needs to be understood ethnographically. So that's what that project was about. Great. Um, you're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I am in conversation with artists, writers, and curators, Pilangalia Collective. Um, I think that that leads us quite nicely onto, I think, the first work of yours that I ever saw, uh, which was the short film, um, Cooperative Explanatory Capabilities in Organisational Design and Personnel Management. Um, I think you get an award straight off just for saying all that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I have got it written down. Um, but this, uh, this sort of deals with the interest you have in, in Fordist and post-Fordist working practices. Um, and yes, sort of, you know, the relationship between sort of contemporary work practices and, and theories around work practices and faith, I think, and competitiveness. Um, so maybe you could tell our audience a bit more about the concept behind that film and some of the ideas behind it. Oh, it, it kind of like, uh, like a lot of things, it came out of uh, a very practical necessity. Like we got invited to be part of, to take part in sort of residency pro program, but we had no time. Uh, it wasn't paid and we had no time to spend in the action, in the space, in the art space at all. So we said that we would just produce uh, uh, like work that would cost us nothing, unlike the performances that we liked doing um, and that we could do on our laptop from home. Um, so I guess in a way that the film reflects um, the kind of like economic problem that we found ourselves in. And um, we stumbled across a really interesting and very elaborate archive of images of an early computing company in the UK um, that for some reason documented 
the most boring and man mundane aspects of life um, from the 60s onwards, um, just like kind of random stuff that you wouldn't think of kind of documenting, let alone kind of archiving. Um, and obviously this was a golden kind of opportunity for us to construct a narrative around because you have the same characters in the same spaces repeat. Um, so it was very easy to develop um, a, a kind of um, a, a film uh, around that. So it was a, a bit of a kind of spoof documentary, a bit of an Adam Curtis, but the kind of thematically the idea was, um, so we were kind of interested in um, the story of the kind of slow transformation from Fordist labor, from kind of um, those sort of like um, manufacturing um, spaces to post-Fordist spaces and how those kind of post-Fordist spaces still retained the same or kind of absorbed a lot of the ideas of kind of surveillance of um, and, and kind of, um, um, I suppose, kind of Taylorism, the breakdown of the, of the production process. Um, and at the same time, trying to promote a, a kind of like uh, a, an approach of kind of like the creative worker, uh, cooperation and collaboration rather than competition at work. So the film follows this transition in a slightly whimsical way, but it ends up being kind of taking towards the end a sort of dark Gothic turn um, and the thing that has been suppressed, which is really that kind of body surveillance that is still there. So, you know, Google, is kind of like um, wants to kind of color itself in as sort of like something, you know, being fun and exciting place to work, but obviously it implements horrific kind of like um, surveillance and control mechanisms over its um, em employees. So that kind of like um, violence surfaces towards the end, it's kind of been repressed, but kind of returns in a kind of like cultish, weird way. I mean, what I'd like to kind of add to that is our interest in this theory of post-Fordism uh, or immaterial labor, all these kind of concepts came very much out of uh, practice. So a lot of uh, kind of conceptual side of things comes out of our experiences, like Paul was saying about the kind of constraints of this particular residency. Um, much earlier on when we started working with performance, we uh, did a project called Asparagus and Horticultural Ballet, which um, was our first solo show in London. We'd been invited by the showroom to do an exhibition. And at the time we were very excited about this minimal synth band called Zex. And we'd read that um, as a student, one of them had put on a show called Asparagus and Horticultural Ballet. And we thought this was hilarious. It was just like, it, what would that be? So we thought, let's reenact the Asparagus Ballet. And then when the gallery approached, uh, approached us, we, we pitched this thinking they probably would say no, but they said, great, what do you need? And um, so we thought, okay, how do we do a performance? We, we weren't very experienced. And we thought, well, you need to have some kind of uh, narrative that would dictate the movement. So we thought you could use any text, like even Karl Marx's Capital. So that was just a kind of whimsical joke that we made. But then we actually read Capital in order to make this happen. Um, we thought we would illustrate sentences from Capital with people dressed as asparagus moving across a stage. I don't know why we thought this would be really funny. Um, but when we started reading Capital, 
uh, we observed that the kind of work that Marx was describing in that book, factory work essentially, um, although he does talk about a lot of kind of special cases, um, differed a lot from the kind of work we were doing uh, with performers, through teaching. Um, and we became interested in, in kind of thinking about, so what is work even at all? Uh, what is it today if it's not factory work? We started reading about these theories of uh, the work that uh, takes place in kind of modern, I don't know, contemporary Western countries, uh, which is kind of service work, um, service sector, uh, relies on uh, a kind of performativity. So we, we were very interested in the analogy between the performance we were doing as artists and this idea that you're always performing as a job when you work in retail or in teaching or in a lot of these kinds of jobs, you have to kind of put on this show of uh, being a certain way. Um, and we were interested in the possibility of having any kind of critical distance from that identity, especially as artists, when so much of what you do is what you are and what you want to be. Um, how do you make demands as a worker then? It's very difficult to go on strike when you're the human capital. Uh, how do you withdraw your own labor from yourself? It's kind of complicated. So um, it was these thoughts that led us to works like Cooperative, and for the life of me, I can't remember the whole name of it. Um, but I think actually in retrospect, um, a lot of these problems are kind of moot because I'm looking at the current situation. Current government doesn't seem at all interested in creativity in the way that New Labour was and the way that this problem was kind of uh, framed around the 90s and <laughs> early 2000s, um, they want us to retrain in cyber. So I wonder whether that moment is kind of gone. I think we still have, we're still living within the total absorption of life by post-fordist labor, but the kind of facade of uh, creativity is gone. So I think we need to reconfigure a lot of that critique. So that's another way of saying it was of its, of its time. Yeah. Um... We've got about just under 20 minutes left. So I'm going to, uh, I mean, there's a lot there we could explore further, but I'm just gonna move the conversation on to another one of your short films, uh, which was something that I saw when you shared it online um, at the start of the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic last year, which was a very prescient film, I think, The Plague and Its Segmentations. Um, so this idea of plague is something you've had uh, clearly a long-term interest in. Um, and The Plague and Its Segmentations is a short film from 2016 uh, that deals in part um, with, I think, a future civilization uh, reflecting on a, a serious pandemic in London and particularly the mystery of uh, Heathrow containing a lot of uh, man-made elements, but there being no trace of human activity on the site. Um, I think something you brought up in the, um, the essay for the Harold Faraki Institute that we read earlier uh, was um, talking about institutions that participate in the biopolitical policing of access privileges. Um, and this is something that I think is also presaged in The Plague and Its Segmentation. So perhaps we can talk a bit about why you made that film at that time and why these things were, were on your mind in 2016 and, and how they ended up seeming uh, more prescient in the light of the recent pandemic? Because we're psychic. <laughs> um, I can't remember why, like, 
back then, I think we just came across uh, a very spooky and interesting site, which is a, a, a village um, uh, that had been abandoned in the second in the Second World War because it had been used um, as as a kind of site for um, um, was kind of artillery uh, or something like that. I can't remember the exact story. Um, but, and, and the residents haven't been allowed to kind of go back. But what, what we were thinking about um, um, at the time was it kind of like the film starts from um, a particular description in uh, Foucault of fairly early techniques. He kind of like writes about how, um, you know, kind of governability sort of emerged from an engagement with the diseased body. And he talks about kind of early plans in the 17th century to quarantine and control kind of plague areas um, and, uh, and, and sort of like inspections that you do door to door. And we're really interested in this kind of biopolitical control, um, partly because I, I, I think um, we, we felt that, you know, it kind of goes back to what, what we were talking about before to kind of labor. We felt that like, um, this is also the birth of a very bureaucratic way of managing kind of populations algorithmically, like you just count people. So in the film, the soldiers go house to house and sort of count heads, there's a head count, literally just kind of um, make very fine kind of the existence of human bodies, um, which is a kind of interesting allegory to understand the kind of what this, the modern state is doing through the census and all of those kind of practices. Um, but then the film itself suggests uh, kind of like, again, a, a very hinted and quite dark mode of resistance, maybe, which is, um, I guess, in kind of like Deleuzian terms, if counting is repetition, if it's just kind of like one, two, three, etc., cetera, uh, then the kind of that mode of resistance is something like difference. Something different happens in one of the houses, something that cannot exactly be accounted for or described by those kind of me bureaucratic mechanisms of control. We were also really inspired by uh, J.G. Ballard. I mean, he's obviously a long-standing influence of a lot of our work. Um, and again, somebody we discovered through music, through Joy Division and Manus Street Preachers, bands. Um, but, you know, in a lot of Ballard's stories, specifically The Crystal World, which was an inspiration for that film, uh, but in a lot of his stories, people kind of move deeper into the disaster rather than away from it, and something new begins to emerge. Um, so in a way, rather than kind of try to go back to a world before the catastrophe, uh, Ballard has said, you know, the catastrophe has already happened, and his protagonists are often trying to kind of... Uh, find something new that may leave them behind, but that will signal a kind of future. Uh, so there's a kind of dark optimism in that. Um, I guess where it relates to the present situation, um, and what I think is really important to say is, you could easily read a film like that as a kind of critique of authoritarianism. I think what's come out of recent discussions of the pandemic is, uh, you know, these kind of to uh, this, this binary. You either oppose lockdown and are for freedom or you're authoritarian and uh, you cite examples like China as a way of controlling the pandemic. 
Um, but what's really missing in a lot of these narratives is the possibility of, of other modes. Um, for example, um, early on in lockdown, we were talking a lot about the case of Kerala in India, which was very different to the rest of India, did a lot better in the pandemic, but didn't do it through authoritarianism. It was hardly reported, but it was done through collective action, through collaboration, supporting people um, to, for example, have food so they didn't need to go out. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, they, they work with communities to enable them to self-isolate rather than kind of uh, impose this kind of biopolitical control. Um, so I guess, yeah, what I wanted to say about that film is I don't see it as necessarily anti-authoritarian in the same way as this kind of anti-lockdown movement, but rather as an exploration of, you know, um, what else might emerge if we stop thinking that way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by the uh, the accompanying essay on your website, uh, which sort of starts off by uh, talking about the parallels between Kazimir Malevich's uh, attitude to kind of colour and form, uh, and then the um, the Sykes-Picot agreement um, that basically kind of carved up the Ottoman Empire, um, and and the way that the, the map was just drawn according to these sort of grid-like um, design. That totally that... Blew, it totally blew our minds. We we're just kind of like very casually talking about it and looking at the Sykes-Picot map. There's a good scan of it on just on Wikipedia, I think. And then we zoomed in and we realized that a very large chunk of the uh, Iran-Iraq border that someone very lazily just traced the, um, I think it's a ge British Geographic um, Society map from like um, 1912 or something like that. Just following the grid, the completely arbitrary kind of uh, abstract grid lines of the map. And by that creating a border that st still stands to this day. So yeah, if, if you know, this is definitely the, implementation of ideas of kind of abstraction, well, visual abstraction on, on a grand scale. That, I mean, that essay actually uh, was written in relation to a different piece, but it is related. It was, uh, we wrote that for The Immigrants, which mm. was a series of short vignettes uh, exploring the artificiality of borders. Uh, and it was envisioned as an ongoing series. So unlike uh, The Plague and Its Imitations and the cooperative film, it's not a kind of narrative, it doesn't have a voiceover, um, or at least they don't all have a voiceover. Um, they're mostly these kind of very short tableau of uh, people doing actions in rural parts of Britain. Um, we've explored these kinds of locations before, so the, the plague film was shot in Tynum, and uh, we previously explored lots of Neolithic sites in Britain. Um, for the immigrants, we were looking for sites that kind of like natural borders. So uh, we shot at Durdle Door, which has this kind of physical gate to the sea. Um, and the cliffs of Dover, which are very obviously political, uh, the Bridestones in Yorkshire. So we were kind of looking at these places, these kind of rock formations um, and thinking about them as boundaries and then thinking about how we configure self and other you know moderns and primitives um us and them by kind of setting these situations up drawing the line around a certain group and not another group 
and we tried to slightly confound that by working with things like um, Romanian folk masks, um, which look kind of Dadaist and probably inspired the Dadaists. Um, but presenting these uh, figures who are kind of ambiguously native and immigrant, so you can kind of read them two ways, I guess. Yeah, um, the immigrants is, is something I'd like to, to talk about a bit more. I mean, um, your, your own description of the, uh, the exhibition talks about how it sort of shows the futility of the border as a means of demarcating identity and power and resources in, you know, in our age of, of global capital flows and, and migrant labor, environmental destruction. Um, I mean, it did, I, I you know, it's, it was, was like a slightly trite thing to, to ask about Brexit, but, um, you know, obviously Brexit is kind of manifestation of something that had been happening all over Europe, which is, you know, sort of reaction against, um, you know, freedom of movement within the, the European Union and far-right political projects making capital out of that. Um, and I wondered how much, because I wasn't able to see the immigrants, I wondered how much the work sort of directly engaged with that concept or, yeah, or, or how, how you dealt with it, basically. I mean, super directly, that was very much our Brexit show. Um, I'll show it to you one day. But um, yeah, the um, there's a film which features a boat which was Kind of inspired by Nigel Farage's uh, Brexit flotilla, it was mm. kind of the same kind of color scheme. Um, there was a Theresa May speech uh, that was reenacted on the coast of Dover, so it's it quite explicit. Um, we were horrified by Brexit, um, but at the same time, I think it can be overstated in that it's the culmination of a kind of logic. So you know, from being a very technical uh, question of, you know, uh, economic membership of a particular organization, it became a signifier for a much larger political moment. And what astounds me is that even those who would position themselves very strongly against Brexit in that scheme, uh, tend to balk at the idea of border abolition. So we were very much kind of propagandizing for that. And um, I continue to be surprised by how resistant people are to this. Coming from a country that is very explicitly nationalistic, you know, in Israel, we had lessons in school teaching us to love our country. Like there was literally a class called motherland, which we realized a few years ago in horror. Um, it's not a normal thing, <laughs> like, what even is that? But um, yeah, we had these patriotic songs and ceremonies. We grew up in a, in a hyper-nationalistic environment. Um, but at least we were very conscious that that was what was being done, like you're surrounded by kind of monuments to the state everywhere. A lot of our work here has been an attempt to both unpack that for ourselves, but also confront the, the kind of uh, latency of that within British culture. So British culture doesn't recognize its own um, ideology in a way, you know, uh, things are a lot more naturalized here. And people, I think, often don't see themselves as nationalistic. There's a kind of skepticism about patriotism, which I think is good, which is sadly changing. Uh, but I think that is a good thing. Um, but at the same time, it means it's very difficult to contend with the 
logic that underpins the existence of borders, the kind of objection to immigration. So again, you end up having the wrong arguments in the mm -hmm. same way as what I was saying about um, university and uh, employability and monetization, where people will make the argument that art does lead to a profession rather than asking why should it. Similarly, with immigration, you get these arguments. Uh, you know, our favorite newspaper, The Guardian, has all these uh, dinners across the divide of like people meet to talk about the supposed disagreements and they'll talk about Brexit and one person will say oh immigrants uh, bring a lot of value into the country and the other person will say oh but we don't have the means to support unfettered immigration because of the NHS or something and you know why is that even the debate that is such a silly way of evaluating it like just because somebody was born somewhere else why should they be less entitled to your NHS mm -hmm. or you know why should they have any value to you know be allowed to survive the climate catastrophe that we've all contributed to creating yeah and also to add to that um i guess in in that kind of like series of films we're interested in the relationship between borders landscapes and performance because borders are not tangible real things they have to be performed and re-performed to exist um so you know obviously in israel you know that's done architecturally kind of by kind of creating all sorts of symbolic uh, and less symbolic uh, architectural features it's done through sort of certain modes of behavior of kind of like soldiers crossing over into kind of like Gaza and then kind of retreating and though Gaza is very much under Israeli occupation um, and in the UK similarly we're interested in how um, Kind of certain actions perform borders rather than sort of like borders being obvious and inherent. Um, I mean, recently I had an interesting conversation with a student from Cuba, and she said, Why is it that like tourists, when they come to Cuba, they rush to the beach and they go into the sea and they enjoy that as a leisure activity? For us Cubans, she said, the sea is a border, it's a, an obstacle that we need to cross in order to obtain um, certain things that are forbidden. For us um so you know kind of like the border i guess performs certain kind of obstacles for a certain group of people and like other set of kind of parameters for other groups but similarly like um the border has to be reinforced through modes of behavior well increasingly as well you know we used in the film we created the uh actual unit at which uh, the border guard sits at the airport. Um, but actually, increasingly, the border is when the landlord refuses to give you accommodation or when, when you can't access healthcare. So it has to be ritualistically performed in that way. Yeah, um, there's a lot more we could talk about, but we're out of time. Uh, so we're going to have to to leave it there. Um, Pil and Galia, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank thanks so much, Juliet. It was a pleasure. And uh, listeners, um, you can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212, soundcloud.com slash sweet dash 212. Find us on iTunes. Uh, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. And we'll be back same time, same place next month. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>